I don't know, encouraging about the fact that when we sing hymns, we sing, we take on our lips the very word of God that Christ himself sang as in the flesh. Uh, turn in uh, your copy of God's word to Hebrews chapter 10. If you're using one of the under chair in front of you Bibles, um, it's page 1006. We'll read this morning verses 1 through 31. Um, as we uh, consider together uh, the better reality. I give your attention to the reading of God's Word. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings uh, in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. When there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that is opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, 
but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, The Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, this is your word given to us and for us for our spiritual good. And we pray that you would use it to conform us more and more into the image of Christ, uh, to reorient our lives around the, this new reality that Christ has created for us. For we ask it all in His name and for His sake. Amen. Uh, that word, I guess, reality. Um, I, yeah, I guess in some ways we don't really know what to do with it anymore. If you have an iDevice, if you have an iPhone or an iPad or whatever, um, you get enhanced reality, right? You can look at the world in which you live through your iDevice and see things that aren't actually there. You can, you can rearrange your room. You can, you can even see dinosaurs. At least you could for a while. I don't know if that's still a thing they have. Maybe they've gotten rid of that. You can you can use the IKEA app or go to the IKEA website and kind of set up your room and 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 the thing you're trying to purchase and and put it in the room as though it were there. You get this enhanced reality with your iDevice. It's it's seeing what is um, that which really isn't yet. It's virtual reality. You put the goggles on and you. Go into some world that isn't at all, and yet you get to pretend as though it is. Then there's the reality that you get to kind of create for yourself, because the world in which we live now says, you, the self, the self is the highest judge in the land, the highest court in the land, and you get to decide what is your reality, and no one else can, can argue with you or debate with you. We have these, these various ideas of what even reality is. And, and many of them aren't real realities. They're just realities that we've created and designed. They're pretending, each of those at least, is pretending that, that what isn't actually is. Well, that, that's kind of the background of Hebrews chapter 10. That there is indeed a new reality that has come into existence that now is today and has become so because of the work of Christ. What if there's a what if there is a reality, one that that sort of actually is reality and in which we all must live and to which we must all respond, whether we like it or not. This passage sort of asks, how will you respond to that Reality. How will you live in that reality? And for that matter, how will it change us? 
First, Christ has inaugurated a better reality. Uh, there's a sense in which the writer really sort of continues the, by the way, there is an outline. I meant to say this earlier. There is an outline on the, don't get used to the outline printed on the back of your bulletin. Um, I cannot guarantee I'm going to do this forever. It just happened. I could do it this time, um, but so be it. Um, the writer in Hebrews 10 really continues a lot of the same thoughts and ideas, the even the same language that he's been using really from chapters 8 and 9. He continues to sort of point us to the insufficiencies and inadequacies of the Old Testament, Old Covenant sacrificial system. That they were but a shadow of the reality that was yet to come. That they were um, merely pointers and, and placeholders until... The true lamb, the true sacrifice, the true priest would come. And you see in verse three, those if those sacrifices had been sufficient and if those sacrifices had been efficient, they would have stopped. You wouldn't need them anymore. If they had done the thing for which they, well, we think they were designed, then Sooner or later, they would have come to an end. They would have become unnecessary. If they could actually solve our sin problem, you wouldn't need them every single year. You wouldn't need them repeated over and over and over again. See, the problem is, or at least part of it, I guess, is that a, um, a truly atoning sacrifice has to be like for like. If you're going to accept something in exchange for something else, you have to value, you have to determine that these two things are of, of the same value, of the same quality. If you're going to have that exchange, it has to be a like for like exchange. A, a weak illustration, um, but the best I could come, well, the one that popped into my head and then I couldn't get rid of it. Um, I was um, in middle school and high school. Uh, my basketball skill level was somewhere around decent church league. Like that's that's the quality of my basketball right there. Um, I could I could steal passes and block shots, and that was it. Um, I eventually added making free throws because I figured out I'm going to get fouled. I can go to the, you know I can I, that I can do. I remember one time when um, my coach, Mark Wright, ARP minister, um, decided I needed to go in and play point guard. Now, I can't dribble. I panic when there's someone in my face. Um, I'm not exactly um, quick in the feet, exactly, right? Um, there would have been this huge, significant step down in, you know, quality. Now, keep in mind, this is church league quality. When I say quality of basketball, I mean church league quality. So it's that, but we're all about that same level. Or we'd be playing for school. Um, and so I talked him out of it. See, I, I can't do any of the things required of a point guard. If you put me in for him... That's not like for like. That's not a fair exchange. You are making a really bad decision here, coach. 
that's the problem with the old covenant sacrificial system. A, a bull, a goat, has never been a like-for-like exchange for man. That's not an equal exchange for a person. A, a goat, no matter how spotless, is not and never has been an acceptable substitute for man. And so this thing keeps falling off the... I've got more. I'll replace it later. I'm going to get rid of that. And go without. Um, And so what we find that Christ has inaugurated this better reality. But the better reality depends on the active obedience of Christ. And in verse 3, the fact that these Israelites had to come back over and over again with these animal sacrifices are evidence that they're a constant memorial to their disobedience. Notice the language, verse 3, there is a reminder of sins every year. Offering these sacrifices automatically brings to mind, I still fail. I'm still a sinner. I'm still disobedient. And that's the problem. The problem isn't just the inadequacies and insufficiencies of the sacrifice, but the problem is that God has always wanted obedience. God has always wanted faithfulness. He's always desired obedience more than sacrifice. What did Adam owe to God? Personal Perpetual obedience. And his rebellion, his cosmic treason, his willful disobedience to his creator brought guilt and shame, not just on him, but all his posterity, to use the language of the confession and the shorter catechism. We've inherited our sinful nature from our parents. We sin because we're sinners. We sin because we've inherited that that sin nature. And so these repeated sacrifices remind us of that rebellion, not just Adam's rebellion, but our own. And so the question becomes, if not a bull, if not a goat, where is my like for like substitute? That's why the writer reaches back to Psalm 40 in verses 5 to 7. And you get glimpses of it in Psalm 51, which we sang just a few minutes ago. God wants, God demands obedience. But since man has failed, we need a new man. And so the this new reality depends on the active obedience of Christ. And in verses 5 through 7, Jesus receives a body. Christ, the eternal Son of Children's Catechism. God is a spirit. It doesn't have a body like men. And so Jesus, the eternal second person of the Godhead, in order to become a like-for-like substitute, had to receive flesh, had to become a man, he needed that human body. Verse 5, a body you have prepared for me. And so Christ became man. Christ is fully God. He's fully man 
Two distinct natures, one person forever, shorter catechism. And so the reality is he has to be fully man to fulfill the demands of the law in our place. We need a substitute who is like us and can fulfill the will of the Father, which is exactly what he says in verse 7. Jesus came to do the will of the Father. In fact, he tells us in John 4, it was my food to do so. He tells us in John 6, I've come not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And so this passage reminds us that in satisfying the demands of the covenant of works, Jesus fulfills that covenant where Adam failed. And he fulfills that covenant in our place. We need the active obedience of Christ. His earned righteousness in as a man for us. But this better reality also depends on the passive obedience of Christ. Notice in verses 11 to 18, the writer returns to the topic of the sacrifice of Christ in our place. And again, you hear these same sort of ideas that we've heard before. Verse 11, the priest stands. Verse 12, Christ sits because his work is complete. Verse 11, the priest repeats the sacrifice over and over. Christ, verse 12, has offered himself once for all. Verse 11, the animal sacrifice was unable uh, to take away sin, as we saw last week in chapter 9. Jesus, however, by his death, solves the problem of the debt that we owe to God. His blood cleanses our conscience, as we saw in verse 9. And here, by his death, we're perfected. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now listen, don't, don't hear passive obedience and assume that that means Jesus lacked control. He, he tells as much to Pilate, right? Pilate's prepared to send him to the cross. And he said, look, you can't do this except that we've allowed it. Except that God has granted you the freedom. Except for the fact that I am not going to stop you, basically, Jesus says to Pilate. You have the right to condemn me to the cross because I'm not going to prevent it. It's, it's passive in the sense that it deals with, with death and burial. It's not passive in the sense that he lacked control. But it's this death, verse 16 tells us, that ushers in the new covenant. And again, the writer reaches back to Jeremiah 31. It's this death that ushers in the better reality. But what is that better reality? What is this, this better reality? Well, look at verse 17. I love the contrast between verse 3 and verse 17. In verse 3, there's, there's the reminder, right? You sacrifice sins constantly, perpetually, repeatedly, and it serves as a, rem, a reminder to you of your guilt. Verse 17, the sacrifice of, sacrifice of Christ once for all serves as a non-reminder to God of your guilt. 
because Christ has suffered and bled and died once for all, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. The blood of Christ does what the blood of bulls and goats never could. Do you believe verse 17? You know, we're, some of us are, are really, really good at reminding ourselves or others of our guilt and shame and unworthiness. Some of us are really, really good at beating ourselves up for just how disobedient and horrible and sinful we are. And certainly those things are true. But do you live as though God has forgotten them? Now, look, that's. That's not a weakness on God's part. See, we forget where our keys are. And we put them down 10 minutes ago. We forget the conversation we had with somebody two and a half hours ago. We forget what we ate for supper last night. That, that's because we're creatures. That's, that's weakness in us. This isn't weakness in God. This isn't, this isn't an inability to remember. This is a commitment to not remember. This is a commitment to forget. And you get Old Testament language like as far as east is from west. That's infinite. Math people. Um, behind your back, God throws, behind his back, God throws our sin. This is God choosing not to remember, to look at his son as a like for like substitute. Are you worried? Do you, do you throw these things up in your own face as though God's just dying to get you back? I saw what you did. You better not go to sleep tonight. I'm coming to get you. We live as though God is in the revenge business. He's already, if you're trusting in Christ, that guilt's already been dealt with in him. The active and passive obedience of Christ inaugurate this new reality. Well, then the writer turns his attention to the enjoyment of embracing the better reality. In verses 19 to 23, for example, embracing the better reality means Drawing near to Christ. You know, it's human nature. It's, it's not biblical, mind you. Right? Don't, let me, don't hear me giving you an out. Uh, that's a different conversation, a different sermon for another day. But it's human nature to hide from people that you know have a thing over you. You know good and well that if you have wronged someone else, if you've sinned against someone else, you're really, really hesitant to put yourself in a place where you know they will be. You're really, really tempted to avoid them because you know they have something over you because of something you've done to them or about them or said about them. When you know someone harbors anger or disappointment or frustration with you, it's easy to stay away. 
that sometimes shows up in our relationship with Christ. We know our guilt, so we stay away. Which means you really don't believe verse 17. That he isn't remembering them any longer. He's not holding your sin over your head. But if for those who are in Christ, God remembers our sin no more. If you have that information, if you have that guarantee, that's an invitation not a repulsion. That's an invitation to draw near to Christ. That's an invitation to come into His presence because you know that when you walk in there, He's not sitting there with His list. He's not sitting there with His black book and His pencil waiting to mark you up. We sometimes think of God like we think of our teachers, right? It's their great delight to just spill red all over my test. Look at all the things you got wrong, student. But if your heart has been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, verse 22... If your bodies are washed clean and you've been accepted by God because of this like for like substitute, you can have confidence. The the assurance that that you can draw near to God without shame, without fear, without guilt, without rejection, without hesitation. You're invited. You're even encouraged, verses 19 to 23, to draw near to to Christ in faith. Enjoying the enjoyment of embracing this new reality means drawing near to Christ. But notice the eye towards the future in verse 23. Let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. That's an eye towards the future. That's an eye towards What is yet to come? Our longing expectation, not just for the new reality brought on by the the person and work of Christ, but the ultimate reality brought on by the return of Christ. Christ has promised. He is faithful. His promise cannot fail. Embracing the better reality means drawing near to Christ. Embracing the better reality also means drawing near to each other. You know, it's common in our world to let the individual, we've already kind of said this, the self gets to determine everything. We literally have gone from Darwin and evolution and biology say everything there is to say about me to Biology says nothing at all about me faster than I've ever thought possible. That literally has been the shift in seemingly warp speed. But we live in a world that says I get to determine, I get to believe what I want to believe and say what I want to say, and I get to determine what I am. And we actually allow that in the church. Not not gender biology issues, but even... Gospel issues. We will let people believe things that are contrary to Scripture and call themselves Christians and nobody balks. And we say, well, they say they're a Christian. 
Well, they don't, they don't believe half of what Scripture is written. They don't believe in sin. They don't really believe in miracles. And so they really sort of deny the virgin birth and the resurrection. But they call themselves Christians and they go to church. So they're Christians. Like we literally let people sort of make that, that, that real for them. And so then they go on to say, I love Jesus or I'm a Christian, but I really have no use for the church. That is a foreign concept in the Bible. This writer immediately moves in verses 19 and 23, 19 to 23 for, from approaching Christ to verses 24 and 25, approaching each other, being with other people. In other words, Christianity is a team sport. You don't get to live the Christian life alone. It's a team religion, religion. We need each other. And so these gospel implications in verse 24 and 25, consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Draw near, uh, not neglecting to meet together. You can't stir each other up to love and good works if you're never around each other. Meeting together, as is the habit of some, encouraging each other all the more as you see the day drawing near. The more the world around us to us seems darker and darker, the more we need each other, not less. The more we need the encouragement of hearing each other sing together in worship. Of, of hearing each other pray and participate in the sacraments together in worship, the more we need to fellowship together. You know, this is one of the reasons that our goals here at Grace Covenant are what they are. Worship, growth in grace, fellowship and service, evangelism and missions. Those are all evidences that God is at work. Those are all evidences that we're reaching people for Christ and equipping them to serve in his kingdom. We need worship in our lives to reorient our our thinking, our lives around this covenant relationship with Christ. And we need the encouragement of each other when we do so. We still have sin in our lives that, that needs to be sort of dug out, rooted out. And that happens in, in, as we grow in grace. And then we need each other to point out our sins, to point out faults, to point us to Christ. To, to point out those faults, not as a gotcha, but a way to put our arm around each other and say, you see that cross? Let's go there together. That's where we're headed. The more we're together, the more we see the hurts and needs and struggles of each other, and the more we want to fix them. That's fellowship and service. The, the more we embrace and draw near to Christ and celebrate life together in the church, the more we want other people to participate in that. That's evangelism and missions. These are all marks of, of life in the Christian covenant community. They're, they're actually indicators that we are enjoying the, this, the life of the better reality, that we're embracing the better reality together. Or to say it another way, would you ever say to a spouse, I love your head. The rest of you, I don't really need. In fact, really what I want to do is, is just kind of carry your head around with me all the time. The rest of your body is whatever, pointless. It's, it's unnecessary. We laugh because it's, 
It's ridiculous and, and, you know, murder and impossible. But isn't that what we do to Jesus? I want Jesus, but I really don't care about the rest of his body. If Christ is the head, if the church is the body, you can't have one without the other. And we say it's completely ludicrous in one context and we absolutely embrace it in another. It makes no sense whatsoever. Enjoyment, the enjoyment of embracing the better reality means drawing near to Christ. It means drawing near to each other. Lastly, thirdly, verses 26 to 31, we see the peril of rejecting the better reality. The writer closes with a warning. Reject this better reality to your own detriment, to your own peril. Setting aside the the law, verse 28, um, meant death on the testimony of just two or three witnesses. Go ask Achan. Go ask Nadab and Abihu. Go ask those folks who uh, ignored the clearly given law of God to their own destruction throughout the Old Testament. In fact, some of the passages that you actually don't like and that you struggle to really think belong in the Bible are those passages that deal with the ones that sort of make you uncomfortable, are the ones that that deal with disobedience and God's holy justice and wrath poured out on sinners. Well, it's in that context that the writer of Hebrews uses another argument from the lesser to the greater. If they, setting aside the old covenant requirements, if they put themselves in danger, how much more those who set aside the new covenant in Christ? Ignore the law? Die. That was... That was the punishment. Trample the blood of Christ underfoot. Profane the blood of the covenant. And we think nothing will happen to us. Don't don't think that when he says, verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately, don't think that, that that means truly converted Christians can't and don't and won't sin. That's not the point. That's not the context. It's true that Christians will uh, want and need to participate in the covenant community, to prioritize worship together, to prioritize fellowship and service and being with the body. But those things don't make you Christians. He's writing to people who have participated in the life of the church who are taking communion, who have, have enjoined the, the covenant community and are, and are participating that way, but who are about to walk away and reject that gospel completely. Don't confuse covenant community participation with conversion. For that matter, we're going to come to the table in just a few minutes. This is not a magic table. Taking communion doesn't make you a Christian. It's a a fellowship meal with Christ and his people, which is why the Bible warns against 
taking communion if you don't belong to Christ, if you don't want fellowship with Christ or with his people. Don't come to the table if you're going to treat it like magic. Well, if I just eat this and drink this, then he makes everything better. This isn't a magic table. It's a celebration table. It's a fellowship meal together. Reject Jesus, reject Christ, reject this new reality in the person and work of Christ to your own peril. Let me close with just a reminder. Um, C.S. Lewis famously pointed out, and you get some of this in this passage, that the one thing that Christianity can't be is moderately important. Christianity, if false, is of no importance whatsoever. If you don't believe the gospel, it makes no sense to go to church. If you have no use for Christ, if you're convinced that Christianity is false, you, it, it seems odd that you would be here. If Christianity is true, it is of infinite importance. The one thing that Christianity cannot be in our lives is somewhat important. Moderately important. This passage reminds us that we have to face this new reality inaugurated in the person and work of Christ. And we respond either by joyfully embracing it together as God's people or ultimately by rejecting it and facing the wrath of God in the days to come. If you believe the gospel to be true, you have the, the hope, the comfort, the assurance that when you draw near to Christ, he won't stiff arm you. He won't push you away. He'll embrace you. And so as we sing in just a minute, as we prepare to come to the table, come reminded of that assurance. Will you pray with me? Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you for this word that does indeed remind us that our salvation is safe and secure in Christ, has been accomplished by his life and faithful obedience, and by his death and sacrificial uh, atoning work in our place, his sacrificial blood, his like-for-like -like substitute. And so, Father, we pray that we would respond with joyful embracing of this new reality. We would draw near to you and to one another. And if there are those among us who are currently rejecting it, would you change their hearts? Would you bring them to saving faith in Christ? Would you draw them face to face with this new reality and their sin and guilt and need for a Savior that they might even now trust in you for their salvation? We ask all of this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.